Lord, we want to thank you for the ability to gather together physically and also digitally, that in unity we can come and sit at your feet and listen to your words. We ask, Lord, that at this moment you will help us to set aside all distractions, the things that preoccupy our minds and our hands, and help us, Lord, to focus and pay attention to what you have to say to us. And so may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing to you, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Okay, I'm not sure how many of you are familiar with the story of Star Wars. Anyone here familiar with Star Wars? Uh, Uncle Chelsea knows Star Wars. Everybody should know, right? <laughs> okay. Uh, it's quite a massive franchise that started in 1977. Okay, so around 1977 onwards, uh, this franchise has been going on. And the last movie came out in 2019, which is just uh, barely two years ago, two plus years. And so many generations would know this universe, from those uh, older generation to uh, the, the younger generation. And my generation, I'm no longer part of the very young generation, but my generation is the one that grew up with the prequels. Okay, so episode one, episode two, episode three. Okay, so if you, if you remember, I think it was 1990s or early 2000s, right, that uh, Star Wars episode one, two, and three, that, that span of time came around. And so this follows the story of how a guy named Anakin Skywalker eventually turns into Darth Vader. Okay, Darth Vader is the, the, the guy with the black armor and he, he speaks like, you know, he breathes through a, a breathing apparatus and he, he's the guy who goes, Luke, I'm your father. Okay, so just in case uh, those who don't, are not so familiar with Star Wars. Okay, so Anakin Skywalker turns into Darth Vader in episode which is the first Star Wars movie in 1977. Okay, so a bit confusing, but the, the order of release is episode 4, 5, 6, then 1, 2, 3, then 7, 8, 9. Okay, so uh, the, the ninth one just came out in 2019. And so for those of you not so familiar with the, the story of Anakin Skywalker, or maybe you need a refresher because it's been a while since it was out, uh, that story, there was a prophecy made of a chosen one, and he would be the one who would restore balance to the Force. So there's this like light side of the Force, dark side of the Force, a bit like yin and yang. Huh? So Anakin Skywalker is identified as the chosen one, he trains to be a Jedi. A Jedi is someone who can use the light side of the Force. So they're the heroes of the story. They're the good guys. The Sith are the ones who use the dark side of the Force. They are the villains of the story. They're the bad guys. Okay? So the tragedy of Anakin's uh, story is that he goes from a pretty good guy to a really, really, really bad guy. Okay? But that transformation doesn't happen overnight. Episode 3 is when Anakin completely embraces the dark side and becomes Darth Vader. Okay, and he says, okay, now I want to follow the dark side. I become a, 
a Sith Lord, I'll, I'll be the apprentice of a Sith Lord, I will be a, a bad guy, lah, basically. But three years before that, in episode two, his mother is kidnapped by a bunch of raiders and dies, and in revenge, he slaughters the entire camp, including women and children. And so most Star Wars scholars would agree, this point, this massacre, was Anakin's first step towards the dark side, and this would eventually lead him down the path towards you know, becoming Darth Vader. And so as the little green man, Yoda, said, if once you start down the dark path, forever will it dominate your destiny. Consume you, it will. Okay, so this isn't a Star Wars sermon, but you can probably see where I'm going with this because of today's passage. That King Saul started out as the Lord's anointed one. God uses him mightily to defeat the Ammonites in 1 Samuel chapter 11 at Jabesh Gilead. But then you fast forward to the end of his reign and the end of 1 Samuel in chapter 31, and Saul is a completely different person. He has repeatedly tried to kill David, who is his very innocent son-in-law. He is consulting a medium, or in some translations, uh, translations uh, a witch, okay, out of fear and desperation of the Philistines. And eventually, he is defeated in battle with the Philistines. He commits suicide. All right, so he, he has a very tragic end. King Saul has a very tragic end. But he does not become this man overnight. It takes many years. C.S. Lewis writes, Indeed, the safest road to hell is the gradual one, the gentle slope, soft underfoot, without sudden turnings, without milestones, without signposts. You don't even realize that you're heading there. Now, for Saul, his first step down this road towards his tragic end begins in our passage today, in 1 Samuel chapter 13. Two weeks ago, Brother Chongjin brought us through how uh, God prepared Saul as king. He anointed him, appointed him through Samuel, uh, and he uh, brings Saul through his first military encounter with the Ammonites. But in today's passage, he is not dealing with the Ammonites. He's dealing with a different enemy. Now, remember how God won the battle for Israel at Ebenezer, right, in, in chapter 7. We looked at this a couple of weeks back, that God helped the Israelites, and they were like, okay, God is our helper. We shall call this place Ebenezer. So that was against the Philistines. God delivered, the Israel, uh, delivered Israel from the Philistines in chapter 7. And so for the remainder of Samuel's time of leading Israel as a judge, the Philistines basically were uh, not such a huge threat to them. Uh, and, and Israel was able to take back many territories from the Philistines. But now, the baton of leading Israel was passed over to Saul as king, and so the Philistines come back into the picture, and they remain a thorn in Israel's side, especially King Saul's side, until you know, they, are, they are finally uh, 
absorbed by Assyria near the period of Israel's first exile. And so in today's passage, Saul's son, Jonathan, he attacks a Philistine outpost. And this brings the, the Israelites into the crosshairs of the Philistines. And the, the literal Hebrew says that they became like smelly <laughs> to, the, to the Philistines. They, they became uh, repulsive, you know, obnoxious. And so the Philistines assemble to go to war with Israel again. Now, the last time we saw Israel facing the Philistines uh, in, in battle, in chapter 7, just before Ebenezer, the Israelites were also very, very terrified. But back then, in their fear and terror, they begged Samuel to intercede to God for them. And so in their fear, they turned to God, and God answered them, God delivered them. All right? And that's why Ebenezer happened. This time, it seems like the Israelites are looking to Saul to deliver them because he is their king. And when they, they see the, the enemy that they are up against, they scatter, they run away and hide, and they leave Saul. Now, it seems as though God had told Saul through Samuel to wait for Samuel to come, offer the burnt offering and the fellowship offerings, before going into battle. Now, there was an appointed time set, so an appointment was made. But Samuel does not arrive on time, and those who were still around, they hadn't run off yet, they also start to leave. And so Saul feels the pressure, and he eventually disobeys the instruction, and he offers the burnt offering himself. Samuel then arrives, tells Saul how he's done a foolish thing, and that his kingdom won't endure because he did not obey God's command. And that brings us to our takeaway message today. And that, that is, God loves a humble and obedient heart. That above all else, God loves a humble and obedient heart. I'd like us to look at three areas of today's passage. Firstly, the circumstances surrounding Saul's offense. Now, the last time that Saul was faced with battle against the Ammonites, he was feeling pretty insecure as a king. He, he started out as a pretty fearful man and his fear would continue to plague him. But when he was first appointed king, not everyone was supportive of his kingship. Some people grumbled and said, who is this guy to lead us? But the Spirit of God came powerfully upon Saul and he rallied together 330,000 Israelites to crush the Ammonites. Okay, so three, three, zero, 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 zero. Okay, 330,000 Israelites. That's a lot of people. And after that victory over the Ammonites, the people embraced him as king. Yay, you have led us into victory. Uh, you're, you're such an awesome king. We are right all along to appoint you king. And so that must have been a very big boost to his self-esteem. He must have felt pretty good about himself. I'm such a great leader. I can bring together 330,000 people to win the battle. Now, when Jonathan attacks the Philistines and triggers them, and now they want to 
now they are hostile to the Israelites. Saul again summons the Israelites to face them in battle. And so the last time he summoned the Israelites, 330,000 people turned up, right? And he, they crushed their enemy. But when the Philistines assembled, they far outnumbered the Israelites. Now, the, num the numbers of, of soldiers listed in chapter 13 are not just there for historical record. They're also there to show how under-equipped and how outnumbered the Israelites were compared to the Philistines. See, Saul had a professional army of just 3,000 men. Three, zero, zero, zero. And this would likely have been more of an elite army, but it's, it's his uh, professional army. Okay? Back then, they, every time they went into battle, they just called and then people from all over Israel would answer and, and fight the battle. Now he has 3,000 professional soldiers fighting for Israel. We don't know how many answered the summons to come and join them for battle. So he had at least 3,000 plus, we don't know how many answered. But from their display of extreme fear, the fact that they were so scared shows not that many answered. Definitely not as many as the Philistines. But on the other side of the battlefield, uh, where, the, where the Philistines had assembled is about 6 km away. Okay, so you imagine uh, you're, you're, uh, they are on higher ground. Okay, so you imagine you look up the hill. Uh, maybe you look at Penang Hill. How far is Penang Hill from here? Is it 6 km? More than that? Less than that? Anyone know? Okay, maybe you just imagine. You look, you look, uh, you go outside, you look up at Penang Hill and you see the whole hill is covered with soldiers. Ah, okay, so that, that might have been the sort of feeling that the Israelites had. Okay, that they had soldiers as numerous as the sands on the seashore. Basically meaning uncountable. So many you cannot count. And then they also had not just soldiers, but 3,000 chariots. Now, chariots would have given them a huge advantage in battle. Okay, they're, they're like the ancient tanks. Okay? And this is on top of the fact that they were on higher ground. So the Philistines had the massive advantage compared to the Israelites. Now, the, and, and so the, the Israelites were simply terrified. They were simply terrified. If you read verse 7 from 1 Samuel chapter 13, the NIV uh, records Saul's troops as quaking with fear. But the original Hebrew says, all the people trembling followed him, Saul. Okay? And so it's likely that they were actually following his example because he too was trembling. He would surely have felt that same fear. And so that's why they start to desert him. And Samuel doesn't turn up. He's waiting for Samuel. Samuel doesn't turn up. Saul's men start to scatter until there are only 600 left with him. If you read later in verse 15, I think, uh, it says he counted those remaining were 600 men. And so that means that all the Israelites who were summoned, including the 3,000 professional soldiers that he had, only 600 remained to face 3,000 Philistine chariots, 
and as many Philistine soldiers as the sands on the seashore. And so you, you can probably imagine the intense sort of fear that Saul would have experienced. I'd like us to just pause here to reflect on our first reflection question for today. And that is, how do you often find yourself responding to fear, especially under stressful situations? And how does that affect the choices that you make? Okay, and for the kids uh, back home, what do you do when you're scared? Okay, what do you do when you're scared? Let's take two minutes to discuss this and to reflect upon this. Let's now look at Paul's, uh, Saul's offence. Now, it's not spelt out for us why Saul offering the burnt offerings was a foolish thing, as Samuel says. And the most popular theory is that Saul was not descended from the tribe of Levi, and so he was not authorised to offer sacrifices, much like how King Uzziah also uh, offered incense in 2 Chronicles chapter 26, and he was punished for that. Now, offering sacrifices was the role of a priest, which Samuel seems to have at this point. It's a bit of a grey area whether Samuel you know, himself is a Levite, or whether he's from the tribe of Ephraim, uh, whether he inherited the priestly role from being adopted by Eli, the high priest. You know, we don't know, but Samuel has this role of uh, offering sacrifices at this point. But what is clear, even though we might not know why it was such a foolish thing, what is clear is that it's not just an innocent mistake. In 1 Samuel chapter 13, verse 12, Saul says, 
I felt compelled to offer the burnt offering. Now, the actual Hebrew for these words is, I forced myself to offer the burnt offering. Not just that I was pressured, but I forced myself to offer the burnt offering. And so Saul knew that he was doing something he should not have been doing. He knew it. He forced himself to do it anyway. But there is one factor to consider why Saul didn't wait for Samuel. If you look at 1 Samuel chapter 10, verse 8, and this would have been uh, the, the week that uh, Brother Chong Jin would have preached, okay, 1 Samuel chapter 10, verse 8. This is just before Saul's heart is changed, before the Spirit of God comes powerfully upon him, and he prophesies together with the other prophets. Now, look at this verse 8. Does it look familiar? Sacrificing burnt offerings, waiting for Samuel for seven days. Right? Bible scholars agree that this instruction in chapter 10 and chapter 13 are not the same location, uh, are not the same occasion based on the locations and chronology. And so this looks like something that has happened more than once, perhaps some sort of uh, agreement that, or uh, a pattern that, that Samuel has with Saul. Saul waits for Samuel seven days, and then Samuel comes along, he sacrifices the burnt offerings, tells Saul what to do according to God's instructions. But when Saul doesn't wait for Samuel, he's not just you know, performing the role of a priest that he's not supposed to, he's also not waiting for instructions. He is offering those sacrifices so that he can go ahead into battle. He's not waiting for instructions from God whether to flee, come back another day, uh, make a tactical retreat somewhere else or whatever, which sometimes God uses, right? Or perhaps Saul expected the Spirit of God to come upon him to win the battle, just like he had experienced before in chapter 10 and also chapter 11 when he battled the Ammonites. On top of that, it's possible that Saul was expecting his reign as king to be just like the other nations around him. You see, at that time, kings were seen as sovereign. Their word was law. Their will was absolute. Nothing was higher than them to the point where many ancient kings would lift themselves up to, be, uh, to a divine status and have their people worship them. If they were not considered divine themselves, then often they were considered agents or representatives of their gods. And so when they acted, they acted on behalf of their god. And so it was very common for kings at that time to perform sacrifices before battle in order to gain their god's favour for battle. And so Saul doing these things might not have been too different from his neighbouring kings. He might have fallen to the pattern of thinking, this is what the other nations do, and so I'm getting ready for battle. I should be doing the same thing. But the monarchy that God had allowed for Israel was a very different one from the surrounding nations. 
See, the king was meant to lead the people in following God, meaning that the king was the first of followers. God's design for a human king was one who knew the law well, one who obeyed the law for himself as much as he upheld it for his people. And so Saul, not waiting for God's instructions uh, and, and presumptuously seeking God's blessing before proceeding with a battle that was not initiated by God in the first place, this is not the sort of king that God had approved of. But whatever the reason for Saul's offense, we can theorize all day. What is clear is that when Saul offered the sacrifice without waiting for Samuel, he disobeyed God's command. That is clearly what Samuel says. And so Samuel confronts him in verse 11. He asks him, what is this you have done? In response, Saul does not confess. Instead, he gives excuses. He tries to justify himself. And we will see him do this again in chapter 15, just two chapters later. And so Saul, here in chapter 13, Saul tries to give Samuel three reasons for his disobedience. Firstly, the men were scattering. Many Israelites had already left. And it seemed to Saul that, you know, I've already waited seven days. My men are leaving. I wait some more. More men will leave until there are no more men left with me and I am alone. By the time he was left with 600 men, he was getting desperate. And Saul was not fully convinced he could win the battle with fewer men, even if they were on the same side as the God of Israel. But next week, we will see that even two men was enough for God to dismantle this entire Philistine army. Second reason Saul gave was because Samuel did not come at the set time. I don't know if you ever wondered why Samuel was delayed. You know, was he from following Malaysian time? Uh, was he waiting for, you know, for, for Saul to be in trouble and then make a grand entrance, become the saviour? We don't know for sure what delayed Samuel. But it is very possible that this was God's test for Saul. Now, last year, as we went through Genesis, we saw how God does test his people. But not in the bad way, not in the way that he's hoping that they'll trip up or he's trying to make them fail. He doesn't tempt them to fail. God wants those he tests to succeed because the test is for a good purpose, to prove to not him because he knows everything, he knows how, the, how the, the, uh, the people will perform, but also for the people around them and the person being tested themselves to prove to them about their own faithfulness. Now, needless to say, Saul did not respond well to this particular test. But I hope you don't come away with this uh, picture that this was a pass-fail situation for Saul as Israel's first king. You know, he, he was given this test, he failed it, that's it, no more. Uh, no, need to, no need to try again. He had many other opportunities throughout the reign, uh, as his reign as king of Israel. He had many other opportunities to repent, to make the right choices, to honour God, 
which we will see more later down the road. And so this was not the only time that Saul was given the opportunity to do what was right. Third reason Saul gave was that the Philistines were assembling at Michmash. Michmash was this place that was uh, you know, 6 km away from Gilgal where Saul was and on elevated ground. And so there was probably tremendous pressure from Saul's men to do something. Their men was deserting them. Why are you waiting around doing nothing for seven days? Are you going to wait for the Philistines to come down with their advantage and their chariots and, and their, their numbers and surround Gilgal? Why not attack them now on your own terms where you are able to have the, the tactical military strategy to choose which direction, you know, uh, what angle, whatever, where, uh, you know, what time of the day and all that. And so Saul probably felt that he had to prove himself as a leader, as a king. That expected of a leader and a king, he should take the initiative. He should do something. Even if he doesn't know what, just do something. And so Saul tried to justify his actions with these three reasons. But they still end up in the same place. You know, I've taken you through uh, these three reasons, right? Firstly, that the men were scattering. Secondly, Samuel didn't come at the set time. Thirdly, Philistines were assembling at Michmash. Maybe you might even empathize with Saul and say, yeah, I can understand how he would have made that decision. If I were in his shoes, you know, I might have do, done the same thing. But they still end up in the same place. And that destination is disobedience to God's command. And so that just makes them excuses. Now, Jesus taught on the Sermon on the Mount for his disciples to be ruthless with sin. And that's because once we start excusing and justifying sin and minimizing it and downplaying it and saying that it's not so bad, it doesn't stop there. It leads to further excuses, further justifications, as Saul will, will show us later on. And, and justifying sin is a slippery slope. We need to be careful not to fall into that trap. And so that, this is also why pride... And stubbornness is so dangerous because when we are proud and we think that we are right all the time, it, all this tends to lead towards justifying our own actions, always lay, laying the blame on others, minimizing our own sins, magnifying the sins of others. And that's precisely what Jesus called the Pharisees out on. And so with this in mind, let's just look at our second reflection and discussion question that what do you think giving excuses and justifying ourselves will do in the long run what do you think that giving excuses and justifying ourselves will do in the long run and for the kids what happens when we always blame others okay two minutes
Let's continue on to our last point, the aftermath of the offence. In the aftermath of Saul's disobedience, Samuel tells him, his kingdom will not endure, and that God has sought out a man after his own heart and appointed him ruler of his people. It's in the past tense. That God has already decided he's going to do that. Now, something to note. Saul is still king, and Samuel saying that his kingdom will not endure could be interpreted as Saul's descendants won't remain king, and so Saul will remain king for the rest of his life. But we will see later that God will eventually reject him as king outright and replace him with David, the man after God's own heart. In fact, Samuel's words here that God has sought out a man after his own heart, appointed him ruler of his people, uh, this could have been the beginning of Saul's paranoia of David, where he continues to slide down this slippery slope of making foolish decisions again and again and again, leading to his eventual defeat and suicide. But until then, Saul would continue ruling the nation as a human king, although without God's favour or God's power. Now, although Saul is God's anointed and he was chosen, we can clearly see he is an ordinary man with very ordinary fears. On the outside, he was a head taller than everybody else, so impressive physically, but internally, his heart was always fearful, not so impressive. And so that would be the identifying mark of his successor, who was not so impressive on the outside. David was quite small and you know, considered short compared to Saul. But what God was looking for was on the inside, his heart. Now, doing a quick comparison between Saul and David, David was also far from perfect. David has his own share of moral failures. We know that he arranged for uh, the possible rape of Bathsheba, definitely arranged for the murder of her husband. And so he was not without blame. But what set him apart from Saul was how he responded to his sin. That when he was confronted with his sin by the prophet Nathan, and he realized the 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 sin that he had done, he responded with remorse, he responded with repentance. And that was driven by a heart that was after God's heart, a heart that wanted to seek after God and to be close to God. And so it's not because... So, so this heart after God's own heart thing doesn't mean that you're a perfect person. It means that you desire God more than anything else. And so even if you fall, you want to make things right with God and chase after Him. I began today's message with the story of Anakin turning to the dark side, becoming Darth Vader. But for those of you who do know Star Wars, at least the first three episodes, you know that that is not the end of the story. You see, in episode 6, Darth Vader saves his son Luke from death at the hand of his Sith Master. So this guy is going to kill Luke, who is his son. 
And so Darth Vader uh, intervenes. He picks him up, throws him into some lift chasm or something, and then he gets electrocuted in the process. Uh, he, he ends up dying, basically. Okay, so Darth Vader saves his son Luke, and he dies in the process. So he sacrifices himself for the sake of his, his son. And so by, by turning against his master and sacrificing himself, he actually fulfilled the prophecy of being the chosen one. And so he doesn't die as Darth Vader, he dies as Anakin Skywalker. Once more, he's on the light side of the Force. Now friends, we may not have as dramatic a story as Anakin Skywalker, or even King Saul or King David, but we share many things in common with them. We are flawed individuals. We may even have a long track record of failures and past failings. But unlike Darth Vader who achieved redemption upon his own death, we are redeemed by the death of another, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so this is why the gospel is called good news, because Jesus' work of redemption is done on the foundation of all our failures, not our lives lived in perfection, but the fact that we have all failed God somehow, and still He redeems us. Now let's take some time to look at our last reflection and discussion question for today. God extends His grace to us despite our failings. So how will you respond to this grace today? And I encourage you to just respond to God, say a prayer to Him in your response. And for the kids, God forgives our mistakes. What will you say to Him because of this? Let's take some time.
In conclusion, I'd like you to know that God loves a humble and obedient heart. He's not looking for perfection. That's not possible for any human being. But He is looking for a heart that always seeks His. I'd like you to be ruthless with sin. Don't allow your circumstances to give you reasons to head down the path away from God. And do acknowledge your failings before the Lord so that He might redeem them. Be careful of making excuses and justifying yourselves before God. We can confess our sins freely before Him and He justifies us through the work of Jesus on the cross. Later, we will come before the Lord at the Lord's table. We will have this time for confession and repentance. And so I invite you later that even as we spend an extended time, that you would bring your mistakes, sins, failings before the Lord. Put aside any excuses, justifications, defences, and just come before the Lord in confession and repentance. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.